All right, let's pray together before we look at God's Word. Dear Heavenly Father, now as I uh, come to you in prayer again today, I, I pray, Father, uh, once again for all the people who are uh, not with us uh, right now, all the, the distancing between us, the physical distancing. Uh, I don't like it, Father. I don't like it that I can't see the people that you've uh, given me the role of pastoring and shepherding. Father, I pray that I'll be found faithful uh, even in the midst of this, that they'll be found faithful of worshiping you and, and doing uh, what they ought to do and honoring you as the creator of the universe and the Lord of their lives. We thank you for your son Jesus, what he has done on the cross uh, by paying for our sin. Father, we pray for unity in the body of Christ, even as I uh, begin to deliver a series of uh, difficult messages for the church, messages that are intensely practical and yet are also uh, no, no stranger to uh, disagreements. Uh, these topics are difficult. Uh, they're, not, they're not easy. They're not uh, always cut and dry. So, Father, give us a love for each other that, that surpasses uh, some of the disagreements we may have and give us uh, an overwhelming sense of agreement on the most essential matters of the faith uh, which are required in fellowship, namely the gospel of your son, Jesus, who died on the cross to forgive us of our sin, who rose from the grave, the integrity of your word, the, the sacredness and the holiness of your word, the, the authority of your word, Father, and, uh, and, and the, the sincerity of uh, salvation by faith alone. So, Father, give us agreement on these things. Help us to love each other and, and to be gathered together again soon. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Okay, I'll give you a second now to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We are through the first couple chapters of uh, this letter that Paul writes to Timothy, a pastor uh, in Ephesus, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we're going to begin here by reading the first seven verses, dealing with the qualifications for pastors. You'll notice the word bishop here, and as we'll discover this morning or uh, today, it's all in the same uh, sense of, uh, of role and office here. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, let's read verses 1 through 7. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So those are, those are our verses this morning. That's our passage. Uh, so I'm not sure if you noticed... But this uh, quarantine period that we've had here has not been particularly uh, kind to me in terms of how it has lined up with my preaching schedule. So I was here uh, on, uh, on Easter delivering an Easter morning sermon uh, to an uh, empty room, which was weird. Uh, then I was preaching on the role of, of women in the church and worship, because that's never a difficult subject. And now I get to preach on uh, what has traditionally been one of the most controversial subjects in our particular church and in churches, period. 
so if you're able to muster just a little bit of sympathy, I mean, I don't want you to feel too badly for me. There are a lot of people struggling in the world uh, right now. But if you're able to muster just a little bit of uh, sympathy for me, I wouldn't mind it. Uh, because I don't have the luxury of looking around at all of uh, your faces uh, in the, uh, in the uh, sanctuary here and, uh, and delivering it uh, directly to you. Uh, but uh, I am pleased, as has been a hallmark of our church, that we do not avoid touchy subjects simply because uh, we find them uh, a little bit uncomfortable. We are not squeamish about this. This is God's Word. It has authority for our lives, and the fullness of it must be taught. So today we are going to continue on in 1 Timothy, coming now to chapter 3, where we find qualifications for pastors and deacons. Now, I've got here some introductory points, so I hope this isn't too long, but I've got several introductory points. Number one, the word used for pastors here in verse one is bishop, the Greek word episcope, and it best translates to the English word overseer. Uh, in other books uh, of the New Testament, there are other words used for pastors. There's the word uh, poimen, meaning uh, pastor or shepherd would be a better translation. Uh, the word presbyteros, meaning presbyter, you've probably heard that, uh, or elder, elder. Uh, a couple of other uh, examples there, uh, words that we find in the New Testament that speak to the same office. And being a pastor is an office in the sense that it is an official capacity in the church. Being a pastor is an official capacity, an official role in the church. It, it has qualifications because it is an official role. So that's observation number one. Observation number two here by way of introduction. There are two places in the Bible where Paul gives qualifications for pastors. Now right here is one of them, 1 Timothy chapter 3. The other is in Titus chapter 1. Now both of these books of the Bible are written to pastors. They're called pastoral epistles or pastoral letters. They're not like the general letters written to the church. They're written to pastors. Here Paul is writing a pastoral letter with pastoral instructions to Timothy. In Titus, Paul is writing a pastoral letter with pastoral instructions to Titus. Paul, in other words, is not putting the qualifications for pastoral ministry in these letters because he wants Timothy and Titus to be sure that they themselves are qualified. In other words, he's not writing these in these pastoral letters to make sure that Timothy checks himself or that Titus checks himself. Now, certainly there's some value in always checking yourself against qualifications whenever you're in a role where there are qualifications, but Paul had already deemed these two guys qualified. They're already pastors. He is putting the qualifications in these pastoral letters because it is a pastoral responsibility to identify, evaluate, and call other pastors to this pastoral office. It is a pastoral responsibility. For instance, this is Paul when he gives the qualifications writing to Titus in Titus 1 verse 5. Now listen to the context of what's happening in which Paul lists all these qualifications. He says, Titus, for this reason, I left you in Crete, where Titus was, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And then he recites all the qualifications for elders. And, and he, again, uses the word bishop in that same text. It's the same office, same function. So note, and this is a failing in many local churches, it is the responsibility of pastors, and in this case, Timothy, and in the case of Titus, Titus, 
It is the responsibility of pastors to identify, evaluate, and call other pastors to pastoral office. It is not the responsibility of the broader church in the official sense. Now, certainly the church plays a part in raising and training and affirming, but nowhere in the Bible is this responsibility given to the broader church. And nowhere in the Bible is there a mass election or committee process laid out for doing this. So that's my second observation. These qualifications are given to pastors for the pastoral purpose of identifying and vetting out other pastors or other people who would apply for the position here. Uh, Three, third introductory point. It is the pastor's job to oversee, and that's what we see in the word bishop, to oversee the ministry and operation of the church. Now the word here, as I say, bishop, means overseer. It doesn't mean that a pastor has to have operational control over everything that a church body does. And boy, that's a big problem whenever it arises in a given congregation where you've got a pastor who feels like he has to be in absolute control over everything that's going on. There are pastors who feel as though they must do everything and they must make every decision. They have to be at every single event. They have to have their hands on all the strings of every instrument in the body. And that's not only impractical and inefficient, it is also, frankly, foolishness born out of some misconception of how the church is meant to operate. And likewise, the flip side of that, there are churches that feel as if the pastor is their employee. And so he will do whatever they want him to do. They are the boss, and he is the employee. But before my family uh, moved uh, to this area uh, some 25 years ago, I grew up in a church in uh, Vandalia, Ohio, that had a pastor by the name of Charles Betts. Charles Betts was my daddy's pastor growing up. He was my mother's pastor growing up, both of them coming from the same church. And I should say happily so. It's it's nice to see when two believers uh, come from the same uh, local community of faith background. And my dad used to tell the story of the time when Pastor Betts boldly stood in front of a confrontational church body that he knew he was called uh, to, to minister in. And he told them that I am called to serve you, but that I will never be your servant in the sense of you being my master. I am called to serve you, but you are not my master. Pastors are to oversee. Pastors are to lead even as they serve. But the Lord Jesus alone is the master over their ministry. Hebrews 13 verse 17 calls the people of the local church to, and this is hard, obey their pastors and submit to them. Now, has that ever been exploited for men to do evil things? Certainly, and and I think we need to recognize the limitations upon all authority in our lives that we cannot do what we know to be evil, what we know to be ungodly and wicked. Nevertheless, in all the operational sense of overseeing the ministry of the church, the people of the local church are supposed to obey and submit to their pastors. And the grounds in the book of Hebrews is because these are the men that are tasked with watching over their souls. And that's an important job. As servants of the Most High God, Hebrews 13, verse 17 says, these men will give an account for what goes on. It is the pastor's job to oversee. Now that is introductory point number three. One more of these. Fourth and final point I'll make by way of introduction. It is a terrible tragedy, in my estimation, that more churches cannot get this right. Uh, Being a pastor, and I lament this, has turned into a profession instead of a sacred calling in our Western world. A profession. 
Uh, and frankly, I think there are a whole lot of people who are pastors where they are because it was a career decision and they've chosen to do something here, something there. And, and they, they've taken a big survey of the landscape and, and where their ministry might flourish the most. And in all sorts of sense, except for the most important, the most spiritually significant sense, serving as God would have them serve. Some pastors have paid big money to go to school for training, just like many other professions. And they've spent time training. And some of them even view their career as a pastor as being promoted through the ranks from children's ministry to youth ministry and then to adult ministry and then you finally make it as an associate pastor before finally you get to be the big head honcho of a local church and they've they finally arrived because they've been promoted up through the ranks like there's some kind of military hierarchy here and there's little bars on the shirts and it's a big load of junk it's just garbage the whole idea of it there is nothing inherently better or more important about teaching adults than teaching children. Now, let me say that again. There is nothing inherently more valuable in teaching adults than teaching children. Now, I have known men, several men, who just can't be content teaching kids or teaching youth because they feel like unless they're teaching to the adults, they're not really pastors. They're not really teaching. They're on some lower rank. And, and I have personally disdain for that thinking. I love teaching uh, youth. I would happily teach youth or children for the rest of my life. And that's exactly what I was doing before I became a pastor. And recently, that's exactly what I've started doing again. I love teaching youth. I love teaching children. Frankly, teaching youth is, is incredibly more rewarding than many of the adult classes I've taught over the years. Some of those, and those of you who have been a part of these will know, some of those classes are snooze fests because adults can be, you know, kind of self-important and prideful and you can hardly teach them anything sometimes. They already know all the answers and, and they're much more eager to nod along as if, yes, I've studied this and I agree with you, than to simply be taught. And, I mean, give me a room full of listening third graders and that's an audience where I can make a difference. But, but no, there are lots of pastors around the country who kind of look down on that sort of teaching. And so they, they've, they've been promoted through the ranks. And, and, and many of them, even worse, are self-made pastors. In other words, they've gone out and started their own thing. And I'm not against church planting, but I believe church planters should be sent for that purpose. But, but here they are. They couldn't get the kind of pastoral success that they wanted, so they went out and they decided, I'm going to take the reins myself and do my own thing. And, 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 or maybe they've applied for dozens of pulpits like they were mass applying for jobs out there and they go through a big interview process. And let me just say to that, there, there's perhaps nothing more depressing to me than thinking about an interview process for a pastor. I mean, <sighs> the thought of a pulpit committee made up of men and women who are not pastors and have never performed that ministry, interviewing candidates to be the pastor of their church is just incredibly depressing to me. And I'm not saying it's evil or that it's unwarranted in every situation. Sometimes, and this is again the sad reality of it, sometimes it seems inevitable because there's no group of pastors left. There was only one guy there to begin with and he's gone. So what do you do? And so sometimes it's inevitable. And I pray that people in that situation will make good decisions under the leadership of God's Holy Spirit. But we should be seeking to identify and call qualified pastors from our church to serve in our church where they are, so that way there will always be a foundation of pastors, plural, 
Lord willing, in a church to carry on the work of the ministry even when someone leaves or dies, which is another form of leaving. And so before we jump into the passage here, just let me emphasize, being a pastor is not a job. It's not a profession. And thinking of it as a profession or as a career is how we get in this situation where there's just one guy at every church to begin with. It's not a job. Being a pastor is, is, is a deep calling. And every man in our church who is listening to this ought to stop and ask themselves, not, do I want to try to be a pastor? That is, that is the wrong question. Do I want to try to be a pastor? The right question that we should all ask is, does my master, the Lord Jesus Christ, want me to serve him in a pastoral capacity in the church where he has called me to serve? It's not a profession. It is a service. And some people are called to the service. And some people who are called to the service whom God has gifted for it don't pursue it. And that's not any better than people who pursue it who shouldn't. We have four pastors at our church, all four of them from our church, which I'm, I'm very happy for. Uh, not that it has to be that way, but I think it's wonderful that it's worked out that way. Three of which do not receive full-time compensation for their work. And it would be a blessing from God if we had a couple of more, I believe. Now, this is my introduction. I trust that I have been an equal opportunity offender through this first part. And I've said something to make everybody uncomfortable. And uh, rest assured, it's not my goal, but I have said what I believe should be said. And having said it, we now venture into the text here. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. And that's what I mean. Paul is giving the qualifications to Timothy because as the pastor in Ephesus, it is Timothy's job to evaluate other potential pastors, other people who might step forward and desire this thing. Uh, and Timothy was, first of all, to express, I think, a gracious approval of the sincere heart of any Christian man who had a desire for this because, as verse 1 says, being a pastor is a good work. This is a good thing to desire. Every Christian should acknowledge this. It is a good thing to be a pastor, which is no small point to make. It is a good thing because it is a good work. It is a work. It is a good work. I'm afraid that there are people who might actually discourage their children or shy away from encouraging their children uh, to be pastors because while they might be kind enough to their own pastors, they don't really see it as personally a good thing. And boy, that's a shame. And I, I can hear people saying things like, uh, be a doctor, you know, be a lawyer, be a businessman, work with your hands. Don't take up that profession. You won't have security in that profession. And that's true, you, you won't. Um, people won't treat you the right way in that profession. And they, they, they probably won't. Go pick some better profession, son. Like Pick something like what I've done or like what this person done. Pick, pick something that will be better for you. But as I've already said, Pastoral ministry is not a profession to choose. It's not a career option. It is a good Christian work which the Spirit of God uniquely gifts people for and calls them to perform regardless of their profession. And if God has called you to this good work, it is spiritually destructive to neglect that call because you would rather not mess with the inconvenience and challenges of it. 
So verse 1 gives us a faithful saying. And that's why it's called that. That's why it's called a faithful saying. Because it's a saying, like all sayings, we need to think about and deeply breathe in. Anyone who desires this is desiring a good thing. So let them be acknowledged for desiring something good. Few enough people do. Okay, now verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless. Now let's pause there, because the next one always gets me into trouble anyway. This one rarely gets me into any kind of trouble. Here we have the first qualification for a pastoral candidate. Number one, he must be blameless. Now the idea of being blameless means that there is no overt fault or crime of sinfulness that can be reasonably held against him. Now, this introduces two really important concepts right at the beginning of this list of qualifications. And these are concepts that are going to apply to all the qualifications here. Number one, the first concept, these qualifications speak broadly to areas of life. And the second concept is these qualifications speak to the man as he is now. Okay, we see that in this first one. Let me say something about each of those. First, on the fact that these qualifications speak broadly to areas of life, what I mean is, they are meant to be principles for Timothy to discerningly apply to potential candidates. Now, think about it like this. If the verse said, a bishop must be without any public sin for the last six months, that would be a broad thing to apply. That would be a very specific thing to apply. Has the person committed any public sin? Yes, sometime in their life they did. Have they not committed any within the last six months? Check mark. Very specific, very clear, very precise, but it doesn't say that. It says a bishop must be blameless. Now let's just acknowledge the obvious here. We are all sinners. Pastors are no exceptions. I mean, everybody I think in our congregation knows me, a little bit at least. They should know me well enough to know that I'm a sinner. Pastors are going to sin. Which means that at some point, at any given point, a pastor will not be blameless in a given moment here. They are going to have to acknowledge their sin. They're going to have to be forgiven of their sin by others. So whether or not someone is sufficiently blameless is an evaluation that Timothy, as an overseer, is going to have to discerningly make. For instance, let's, let's think about a man who's caught in gossip, uh, uh, talking about someone behind their back. Uh, that person is not without sin. Gossip is a sin. But assuming he repents, is he now sufficiently blameless? Timothy must prayerfully discern whether or not he is qualified at that point. Maybe he was caught up in a simple conversation and he just mistakenly said something about someone. And maybe Timothy would hear that and say, well, that's gossip, that's sin, but, but it, it's very different from someone, on the other hand, who's found to be gossiping about, let's say, an opponent of some sort with the intention of wrongfully discrediting them behind their back. I mean, all these things are not the same. And what we'll see with all of these qualifications is that the pastors who are evaluating the candidate are given the responsibility to make decisions. That's not easy. And these are decisions that we might label judgment calls to make judgments. And the reason why is, again, this first concept, these qualifications are broad. They're meant to introduce thoughtful, discerning judgments. They're not meant to be lying in the sands that say, it's easy. If they fall on this side, they're in. If they fall on that side, they're out. They're not meant to be evaluated that way. They're supposed to be carefully considered. Most of the situations we find ourselves in that would be disqualifying are difficult and complex, and they can't clearly, they're, they're not just black and white all the time. 
Second thing I'll say about the concept here, uh, and this is on the concept of these qualifications being current, they apply to the person right now, which ought to be really obvious when we're talking about blamelessness. You say, what do you mean about that? I, I mean, none of us have always been blameless. Okay? You can't be a Christian if you think you've always been blameless. We are sinners. Before we became Christians, before the Spirit of God broke our hearts and convicted us of sin, drove us to a Savior who paid for that sin on his own back, freed us from uh, the, the, the penalty of sin, uh, quite apart from anything, any self-righteousness on our own, before we acknowledged sin and repented, we were sinners and unrepentant sinners at that. Uh, we were enemies of God, not lovers of God, so none of us have always been blameless to the extent that any of us are now. These qualifications, all of them, including blamelessness here, are meant to evaluate the person as he is, not as he might have once been. You ask, how far back then do you go in this evaluation of a man? And that's a great question, because Paul doesn't say. Just like he doesn't say which sorts of sins are reasonable to be covered by the common grace of repentance and forgiveness, and which sorts of sins disqualify a person for not being blameless anymore. Once again, Timothy as a pastor has to be discerning in his evaluation of the candidate. I'll give you an example. If a Christian man wanted to be a pastor, but he was in some shouting match two years ago, and it was a big one, and everybody remembers this big blow-up, some big outburst of anger, and, and it nearly turned violent. But since he's repented of that sin and he wants to be considered for the work, what do you think? Is he quarrelsome, which is disqualifying, or not? That was two years ago. But, okay, what happens if it was two months ago? Qualified or not? What if he's only been in one big blow-up in 20 years? And it just happened to be two months ago. Is he quarrelsome or is he not? One mistake in 20 years doesn't seem quarrelsome. But the fact that it was two months ago might mean that he would be. Or at least concerned for it, right? Or what if he's been in dozens of feuds, huge public fiascos with people, over years and years and years, but none in the last 18 months? Is he okay or is he not? <laughs> And this is what I mean when I say the qualifications are broad and meant to be applied discerningly and presently to the candidate that comes forward. Ultimately, the pastors evaluating him have to make what we would call tough calls because we're all sinners. This is not about whether or not someone is a good Christian or whether or not they belong in the church or whether or not they belong in other ministries. This is about whether or not someone is qualified to be a pastor. And so this is difficult stuff. So qualification number one, the candidate before you should be blameless. There should be no open, unresolved, unsettled issues of sin or wrongdoing. And we have established two concepts. One, that all of these are meant to be broadly applied with discernment. And two, that they are to be applied presently. Okay, that brings us to the second qualification. And this is the one that I'm likely to get in trouble with. The husband of one wife. Now, years ago, I wrote this booklet for our church called Deacons, uh, aptly named because we were needing to look for some deacons in the church. Praise God, we found two willing and qualified candidates who have served faithfully uh, for many years now. And in that little booklet, I wrote about this qualification 
for deacons, the husband of one wife, because it also applies there. And I think what I wrote in the booklet is simple and helpful. So I'm going to take the cop-out approach for, for now, and I'm going to start by reading what I wrote in this little booklet. And this is, again, this is, this is freely available. Uh, we have plenty of copies. Most people never took one. Uh, which I wasn't offended. Uh, they're all in the back. If you want one of these to go through qualifications, uh, I think it'll be helpful. But the, here's what I wrote about this. Of all the qualifications given to us for deacons, and pastors in this sense, this is the most difficult to interpret. A literal translation of the original Greek, and don't turn your brain off, okay, at that point, because that's what we're doing, studying God's Word with difficult things. We're trying to discern here. We need to know the words. A literal translation of the original Greek simply reads a one-woman man. Not the verbiage of the husband of one wife. That's the English translation. The translator's doing the best they can with the Greek words written by Paul, one-woman man. In the Greek, the word man can also mean husband, which is why we read it this way in the English, and the word woman can also mean wife. There were not separate words for those things, a woman, wife, man, husband. Since we're not given any explanation of the phrase, would have been nice of Paul to do that for us, it requires careful thinking. There are basically two ways that we could come to understand this, two broad categories. It either means, A, having only one woman, for his entire life, or B, having only one woman currently in his life. And every specific interpretation of the verse is going to come under one of those two categories. So let's think about both these options together. The first option presents a number of troubling questions. If Paul means A, having only one woman for his entire life, then we must immediately ask about widowers, for instance. If a man's wife dies... God's word allows him to remarry, according to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 9. So it would be very strange if remarrying were now a disqualifying issue for becoming a pastor or a deacon. We don't believe this is the meaning of the text. Now, some people think that Paul is speaking only about divorce. Jesus makes it clear the chief problem with divorce is that it causes adultery. Matthew 19, verse 9, if you want to follow up on that. So if the qualification, one woman man, is speaking only of divorce, then what do we say about men who have lived in unmarried adulterous relationships for perhaps years or perhaps shorter? What do we say about the man who had an affair with a married woman? He didn't marry her and divorce her. He instead simply had an affair with a woman who was married. Do they somehow pass the qualification? Can they become deacons while the divorced man is excluded? Is his form of adultery, in other words, worse than their form of adultery? That would be a strange conclusion. I don't think that there's anything in the Bible that would lead us to believe that divorcing is somehow worse than an affair or than, than adultery. We don't believe this is the meaning of the text either. Still, there are others that think this qualification is talking about all previous adulterous relationships. But if that's the case, then a one-time mistake as a teenager even if it ended up being to the woman who you were going to marry someday, would be disqualifying here. Uh, if, is someone, I guess this is what we have to ask, is someone permanently disqualified from becoming a deacon or a pastor because of a sin that they committed decades ago? Can deacons only be people who have never committed a sexual sin? Can pastors only be people who have never committed a sexual sin? 
We don't believe this is what the text means either. See, if you try to split it off, and I'm cautious even as I venture away from the text, this is me, not the book here, but if you try to split it off and you say, well, one woman man speaks specifically about divorce, then you're elevating divorce above all sorts of other heinous sexual sin. As a matter of fact, you could be a pastor, have an adulterous affair with another person as long as you don't divorce your wife. According to that interpretation, you're not disqualified. That doesn't make any sense. But then if you say, well, no, it's talking about all adultery in your past, including divorce. If you say that, then you have to include all adultery in the past, including all sexual sin. And now all of a sudden you're going to struggle to find anyone who's qualified uh, for very long. So what do we do with that? We believe the best way, back to the book, of understanding this one-woman-man qualification is that a deacon or pastor must have only one woman in his life at the time of his service. In other words, he must be pure and holy in his current marital relationship. He must be a one-woman man in order to become a pastor or deacon. If you notice, every other qualification in these lists is intended to be evaluated in the present, not the past. For instance, when Paul says that a deacon must not be given to much wine, drunkenness, he's talking about the present situation of the man applying to become a deacon. It's possible that a man once struggled with drunkenness, but no longer does. He's not disqualified because he used to get drunk years ago. The same could be said for being greedy. Paul does not mean that a deacon has to be someone or a pastor has to be someone who has never been greedy before. I mean, pretty much everyone struggles to some degree with greediness uh, before becoming a Christian and many even after. Paul simply means that a deacon or a pastor must be someone who's not greedy for money anymore. We believe the same is true then for this qualification, one woman man. It does not mean that a person has never committed adultery or that a person has only ever been with one woman. It means that the deacon must be living purely before the Lord right now. A deacon, a pastor, should not have more than one wife. A deacon, a pastor, should not have an affair. A deacon, a pastor, should not have an adulterous relationship. And yes, a deacon, a pastor, should not get a divorce. Not only are these things sinful, but they are extremely compromising to a person's ministry. Now, it's possible that a man be a member of the church and have an affair. If he repents, he will be forgiven as the Bible commands. Matthew 18, is verses 15, verses 22, we know the text. But such a man could not be a deacon in the midst of that sin. He's not qualified as long as he is obviously compromised in that area of his life. Similarly, if a pastor or deacon in the church were to have an affair, he would need to be immediately removed from deaconship. Even if all the repentance in the world accompanied it, he is not currently, presently demonstrating himself to be a one-woman man. He has compromised himself. If he repents, he can stay a member of the church according to the forgiveness offered to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. The body of Christ should love him. The body of Christ should embrace him. The body of Christ, of Christ should not condemn him. But he should no longer be qualified to be a pastor or a deacon. And that would be the case for quite some time. Maybe the remainder of his life to be evaluated, again, by the judgment of overseers, pastors. So, a person, this is summary, person applying to become a pastor or a deacon is not immediately disqualified because of some past sin in life that he's far removed from. A divorced man could become a pastor or a deacon if he is no longer an adulterous man. A man who once lived in an unmarried relationship 
may also become a deacon if he's no longer an adulterous man. And plenty of examples of that throughout church history that I think would surprise people. Determining whether or not a man is truly free from these things is the responsibility of the pastors and church where the pastor or deacon is called to serve. Now, that's what's in this little booklet. So if you'd like to read more on the qualifications, I'd encourage you to check that out. It's freely available to you here at the church. Now, to that, I will add very little at the moment except a few points. Number one, I'll say this. Paul knew how to speak about divorce. Okay, this one woman man language uh, that Paul is choosing to use here is not code for divorce. He knew how to speak about divorce. He did this on several occasions. He chose not to make this specifically and uniquely about divorce because the Spirit of God chose not to make this solely about divorce. That's what I believe. Second thing I'll point out, the phrase one woman man is used in exact reverse in 1 Timothy chapter 5 to speak of the qualifications for widows who are going on the church's ongoing care list. We're, we're only a couple chapters away from 1 Timothy 5, so we're going to get there. 1 Timothy 5.9 says, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. The woman of one man. It's the same phrase. In the Greek, it's, the, it's just a reversal of the same three words. Now, this verse in 1 Timothy 5, speaking of widows as a qualification for them being added to the list, has nothing to do specifically with divorce. I mean, it might include divorce, just like divorce would be included uh, potentially in the, the one-woman-man qualification. It certainly might apply to someone who divorces, but it also might apply to someone who is adulterous on any other front. Third comment I'll make, final thing I'll say to add to this, it would be very hard in my judgment for a man who has been divorced to become a pastor. And it would be even harder, I think, for a pastor who divorces while he is a pastor to remain a pastor. It's difficult for me personally to see that at all, frankly. Because I hold a view of marriage that is very high because the Lord Jesus and, and my God seem to hold a very high view of marriage specifically because of what it represents, the picture of Christ and the church. And a pastor who has been divorced might, even unintentionally, communicate to others that divorce is not a big deal. And you say, well, we can't be worried about that, but marriage is meant to communicate something. That's what we're told in the New Testament. Marriage as an institution is meant to communicate something. So we have to think about it in that term, in those terms. So I, as well as the other pastors, are not interpreting the qualifications here in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1 in a way that somehow gives us license to suddenly call a lot of divorced people to be pastors uh, as if it were no big deal. That's not our aim. No, we're interpreting the passage this way because this is what we truly believe the passage says. It would be easier in our particular context of ministry, for us specifically, to say, if you're divorced, you're automatically disqualified. That would be easier because, frankly, in our church, I think it might even be more popular than the position that we've taken. But we can't do that because that's not what we believe this actually says. And this is not my word. This is God's word. This is not about what would be most convenient for me. This is about what I think the Bible actually says. And I have to be honest about what I believe the Bible actually says in all of its fullness. So, 
we, we can't pick what would be easiest for us or what you know, we all might like to hear from the Bible any more than, than we might criticize another body of Christ for neglecting portions of the Scripture that aren't comfortable for them. We have to look at these things honestly and seriously. And the fourth point I'll say is, if you disagree with this interpretation, and many, many of you do, because you hate divorce, I hope that you are at least comforted in the knowledge that we hate divorce too. We have not encouraged divorce. Uh, we will never celebrate it or uphold it as some good or admirable thing. Uh, we discourage it, and we believe in the sanctity and the high calling of marriage. Now, all right, I've taken all this time uh, today to speak to these two qualifications, but I've also, behind these two qualifications, set the stage for the rest of them, uh, and I've dealt with the most complicated of them from my perspective. So next week, we're going to finish out the rest of these qualifications with some helpful comments, probably do deacons as well, if time allows, next week, all in one shot. But today I want to close the week's message on one more. Hopefully it's an uplifting note. It certainly is for me. And here is my closing point of application, okay? If we make our church fellowship together centered around the things about which we disagree or understand differently, this is never going to work. Okay, this is never going to work. Um, it is very unlikely <laughs> that we are going to find a decent-sized group of Christian people who truly agree with us about everything in the Christian faith. I mean, there's a lot here. It is very unlikely we're going to find a decent-sized group of Christian people who, who truly agree with us about everything and live locally in our community to have fellowship with. Uh, now, you might find a very small group of people who agree with you on everything, and you might find a larger group of people who you think agree with you about everything because they never really talk about the most difficult things in any straightforward way. They kind of dance around them because they know we probably don't all agree about this and we don't want to cause a problem. But 100% agreement on all matters of the faith is very unlikely. If that's what it's going to take for the church to operate, then this is, this is a fool's errand. This is never going to work out. And I mean that literally, the church will never work. It won't work. And, and that's the key here. The church has a function. It has a job. We have a work. What are we supposed to be doing? Share the gospel in order to make disciples. Teach them, teach them to observe all things that Jesus has commanded. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We can't do that. And you know, this virus has brought in a whole other context to this, you know, because we've been distancing. And you know, people disagree about this virus, and they disagree about how the church should operate in the virus. They disagree about how each other should operate. They disagree about what the government should do. And if we make our relationships contingent upon agreeing on all this stuff, or all this stuff, this is never going to work. This is never going to work. We are not all going to agree with one another on everything. We're not all going to understand things the same way. Now look, there have got to be things that we agree and understand on that are essential to the faith. We have got to know what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. We've got to know that. So I'm not saying there aren't primary issues for agreement, but we also have to live graciously with one another here because we're called to live graciously with one another. And we have to do our, our job here of sharing the gospel, making disciples, teaching them to observe all things Jesus has commanded. We have to do that together, not in groups of 10 and 20 people that happen to agree with us on everything. And not in some phony baloney setting where unity is built around the idea that we're not going to talk about difficult things. We have to do this as the whole body of Christ, 
We do it with faith in our God that as we teach and study, we will grow together. And this is what Ephesians 4.13 says. We will grow together to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now that's the goal. So look, sometimes when you're growing together, you wrestle with things you disagree about. You know what? There's value in that. And so we may not agree on all of these things. In fact, I'm quite certain that we don't. But we have a call uh, to serve the Lord together in unity, and these things cannot be always uh, jeopardizing fellowship. And, and it's really sad when they do. It's really sad. You know, I've seen people leave the church over these things, and then they go to other fellowships that uh, believe uh, the exact same thing that we believe. That's where they end up. I've seen people leave our church because they have a problem with one of these things, and they go and they end up serving in a church that has had, for instance, divorced deacons or pastors, and that's where they end up. And you say, <laughs> you know, that we can't, we can't operate like that, and, and we can't operate, you know, uh, as if our relationships mean that we agree on everything that's happening in the world, and politically we're all 100% aligned, and we, we all think of the same things about this virus and about solutions and about social distance, all this stuff. There's got to be a common grace among us. And, and if we do that, if there is a common grace among us that allows us to work and serve the Lord together while genuinely loving each other, not faking love while disagreeing really is, 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 uh, is generating strife, but, but putting strife aside and genuinely loving each other, if we do that, then praise the Lord, we will see the kind of growth that we've seen in decades here. Slow and steady growth to spiritual maturity among all those who keep the faith and continue in the body. That's what we've seen. People who keep the faith and continue in the body together, they continue to grow. And that's what we're looking for. All right? So tough message, I understand, but that's where we're at. We're not going to dodge it because we're not here together. Uh, let me close us now with a word of prayer. Father, I love you, and I'm anxious for the day that I hope is soon approaching when we can all be gathered together again. I am also anxious for the day when we will all be gathered together eternally, including with those who aren't here anymore. Father, separation is always difficult. Separation in terms of death is incredibly difficult, and we thank you for the reunion promised to all of those who inherit your kingdom. What a privilege it is that as difficult as things might be, even now seeing through a, through a mirror dimly, that one day the veil will be uncovered. And every disagreement, every dispute will fall away under the glorious revelation of who you are. And we will know in full. We will understand in full. And we will be united fully without strife or discontentment as we are united together in your presence. And that will be a wonderful time. And Father, people need to know how wonderful that will be. They need the hope beyond a vaccine or beyond an all-clear signal. They need a hope beyond a, a new job, beyond a furlough. They need a hope that is true, one that surpasses all the insecurities and uncertainties of this world. We need to be a people preaching a real gospel message. Thank you for giving it to us. Help us to operate in the church as we should, to take all these things seriously. I hope, Father, that no one hears me trying to diminish the importance of these things, or trying to silence people who disagree. These are discussions that we should have and be willing to have. You know, Father, how I long to be with the body of Christ, and, and I enjoy sitting down and working through, without contention, 
disagreements in our understandings of the text. There's so much growth to be had. Help us to love each other as we do it. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.